Today on the Daily Scoop podcast for the Scoop News Group, the automation revolution coming in 2022 is already underway. I could name multiple agencies. You've featured some of the agencies on your shows who have accomplished amazing things. You know, IRS recently shared they got something done in 72 hours that would have taken almost a year to get done. And the time is now for a new look at new talent. There needs to be a grand strategy that says, Agencies, do your own thing, subject to these broad principles. It's Wednesday, December 29th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. A change of pace this week, a look ahead at what's coming in 2022. Some of the most experienced practitioners in government will give you their top two for 2022, the two things they think you should be watching in the new year. First, a reminder, though, it's not too early to plan for IT Mod Week. It's coming February 28th through March 4th. More than 100 events will happen around D.C. with lots of government and industry speakers. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at the Daily Scoop Podcast. The Department of Homeland Security has new cyber hiring authorities in 2022. It's one example of how changes to people management could be coming in the new year. Suzette Kent is CEO of Kent Advisory Services. She's former federal chief information officer. Suzette, welcome. Thanks for coming on. In your top two for 2022, you write people and operational changes due to service delivery becoming significantly more digital with the workforce operating in a hybrid mode is one of the things that you have an eyeball on in the coming year why so what do you see playing out here Suzette welcome hey thanks thanks for having me Francis I think we have to hold the great ground that we made during the pandemic on delivery of digital services and use the 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 exclamation point put behind that by the CXEO you know and the things that that we've done to bolster cyber for remote work and keep advancing our capabilities there. And that means just not only the services that we're delivering, um, continuing to kind of elevate and perfect those, but also re-examine our mode of work, the the tools that the workforce has to to both develop, deliver, um, and keep moving forward. We have a lot of great things that happen and we have an opportunity to pull those together in a better way to be more thoughtful about it, not a rush, but optimize both what we deliver and the way that we do that. So that's an exciting thing to look forward to in 2022. You write your first item in the top two for 2022, assuming that that hybrid mode workforce continues ad infinitum is that or or that's my reading of what you wrote is that a fair read and if so what preparations do we need to make or or what implementations do we need to continue to make to sustain that francis i I think that's in the category of those things that we have to do as you look across private sector this the, the change has been so significant many areas have said hey we may not require a full time back in office for many roles um, going forward, we, we, we now have embraced different types of tools, different modes of work. We find that that helps us get to a different population. It helps us work different cycles. You know, the, the kind of recognizing the benefit side, we have to do that in government to be competitive, to be able to expand our workforce. 
um, where they live and where they work doesn't always have to be tied to a specific area. So, yes, I, I said that intentionally because I think we have to go there to be able to be um, to attract and maintain talent, but also to increase the flow of people in and out at different points, you know, in in their career, people through their life cycle make make different types of decisions. And if we're not creating that flexible working environment, we're going to have a terrible, you know, disadvantage. And we, we've proven that it can work. Yes, there are some roles, you know, you you can't necessarily be a park ranger um, remotely. <laughs> you have to be on site. But there are many roles where there are flexibilities that we've now proven they can work. And since we're, we're kind of over that, um, that bias or, or, or that, you know, resistance, now let's figure out how to maximize it and leverage that to uh, create a robust workforce. All right. The second item on your top two for 22, Suzette, is massive growth in automation and artificial intelligence. And you write, those both drive the need to re-examine workforce risk practices and operational resiliency. Are those potential negatives against operational resiliency or positives, Suzette? I think they're positives, but they have to, we have to go at them, you know, in a very thoughtful manner. You know, we know all of our automation tools, you know, AI, machine learning, RPA, all those things are based on the quality of the data and the quality of the way, you know, in which we capture those devices, um, you know, other, uh, other places. I could name multiple agencies. You've featured some of the agencies on your shows who have accomplished amazing things. You know, IRS recently shared they got something done in 72 hours that would have taken almost a year to get done. Um, And agencies are embracing what they can do with all these different automation tools. Side by side, we saw that the second, you know, year data, uh, year two, uh, action items for the federal data strategy. We have to keep advancing, you know, our, our you know our foundational infrastructure, you know, in data and the visibility of what is in the data, how we prepare it, where it comes from, all those kinds of things. And the reason I put risk practices and operational resiliency is that um, when we automate certain things, we have to recreate where we put those checks and balances and where we examine what outcomes are actually being delivered because there will be new things that we didn't know or anticipate in the data. And we have to um, stay vigilant on those to make sure that we're still achieving uh, the, the types of outcomes that we want to without bias, without, you know, because what you, if, if we miss something in the historical data, we have to go back and, and examine that. And so that's what I meant about kind of risk practices and operational resiliency. And I'll end with the last thing, obviously, you know, the workforce, we still, we have to ensure that as we leverage more of those tools, we're investing in both current and workforce that's being onboarded to make sure that they are proficient and comfortable in those operating environments. Uh, To achieve and sustain massive growth in automation and AI, as you write, what are the infrastructure requirements and what are the workforce understanding, knowledge-based training requirements to be able to do that? And you probably know the answer to this more intimately than just about anybody on earth. What's the current capacity of the government and individual agencies to be able to do both of those things? 
That's a great question. It's something I, I don't know that I can answer right now. It's something that I know that with various companies and conversations with agencies, we are still working on. We know, I started with the data, we know that the data is a key element. Um, that's some of the work that I'm doing outside, but directly, there's a lot of cool things going on with agencies where they are engaging with the research communities, universities, and others to better enhance what they have, both for internal use and external use. So both mission, you know, and operations. Um, we also, from a workforce perspective, it's not just the technology workforce, right? It is the whole operational workforce. It's the management officers, it's the agency secretaries and deputy secretaries, and the way that they go about, you know, achieving mission. And, and some of that is a, a change and how we look at evidence, how we look at data to support, you know, policy decisions and those types of things. So it's both a operational change as well as we have to lay the infrastructure, right? And my, my, my friends out there in the vendor community, if I didn't talk about both the computational, you know, uh, the, the hardware we need, the, you know, cl the, the cloud scalable infrastructure, um, the disciplines around data and absolutely the cybersecurity tools and the recovery tools that we need, you know, for data. As we use more, we have um, a bigger responsibility to protect privacy. And I also think, even though this won't be the biggest thing in 2022, we need to make progress on, um, I'm going to use just the term citizen ownership, but citizen um how, how a citizen has a role in how their own data is used. And as we advance uses and automation and maybe um, capabilities that we allow, you know, things that we allow citizens to do, they need to have some choice in how their information is used and where it's used. And, and those will be mechanisms that we have to spend more time thinking about. A lot there, Suzette. Grateful for your uh, preview of the coming year. Thanks for coming on the program today. Thank you for having me. Happy holidays. You can read more about Suzette's top two for 22 in today's show notes at the Daily Scoop Podcast. Dot com. A reminder, you'll get a new Daily Scoop podcast again tomorrow, and then we're off for New Year's Eve on Friday. Back at it Monday, January 3rd, with a brand new year of shows. Thursday's Daily Scoop podcast debuts tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The intelligence community's plan for cloud computing in 2022 includes five vendors working together in a multi-cloud environment. The acting chief information officer of the IC, Michael Washell, told you on this program recently about his strategy to do it. It's only one of the big projects facing the IC in 2022. Ron Sanders is staff director at the Florida Center for Cybersecurity at the University of South Florida. He's former chief human capital officer at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and former chair of the Federal Salary Council. Ron, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Now, you pulled some ODNI stuff on me by accepting my invitation to talk about your top two for 22, but gracefully declining to send them to me ahead of time. So what's one item that people should watch in 2022, Ron? Well, I think they ought to look at the headlines. Um, and uh, I'm going to uh, offer up two predictions, uh, Francis. Both of them you could characterize as black swans. Uh, but my experience is that if the government is ever going to do anything, it needs some sort of external impetus. 
usually of an of the negative kind. Uh, so I've got two for you that uh, actually do come from my background in the intelligence community, and at least one of them potentially uh, connects with my uh, my new life dealing with uh, cybersecurity, particularly from a workforce development standpoint. All right, lay one on me then, Ron. All right, so um, black swan number one. Uh, we are facing midterm elections this year. My prediction is that we're going to face a hung midterm election with House and the, the majorities in both House and Senate uh, held up because of allegations of uh, voter fraud and uh, rigged voting and all sorts of things that you saw a couple of years ago. Uh, in this case, they may or may not be driven by uh, external um, intervention, uh, so-called active measures by uh, Russia and others. Uh, we're actually mounting a pretty good defense against those. Uh, it, 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 in fact, some would characterize it as an offense, but we're doing a pretty good job thwarting that. But who needs uh, external impetus when you've got our own internal divisions? So I'm assuming a hung election. And um, as a consequence, I think the role of civil servants in keeping the country running for months, not just because of a threat of uh, a funding lapse or um, a lapse in the debt ceiling. Uh, most people don't understand those. Uh, in this case, I think it's going to be uh, a, a president uh, presiding over uh, a chaotic conference, uh, Congress rather, where no one can decide who's in charge. And that's gonna mean that civil servants are gonna have to keep the country running for an extended period. More on that uh, if we have time. Yeah, well, we do have time. And I'm curious as to what that the implication for that is for management of that civil service workforce, because that what you're what you're describing potentially, I can't recall a similar instance in history. Uh, no, not to that extreme. And I think it's gonna require some calm, seasoned, reasoned heads. Uh, in Congress, particularly those whose uh, seats are not up for grabs, to step back and say, we need to overhaul the system, the civil service system, because I do think that uh, their um, unquestioned dedication notwithstanding, we're going to find that civil servants are hampered, handcuffed by the system we've left them. It's you know over half a century old, uh, at least in large part. And when it comes to actually running the country, not, uh, again, through uh, furloughs and funding laps or debt ceiling issues, et cetera, but literally running the country with a Congress uh, diverted and um, in dispute, uh, I think people are going to realize, hey, the system is no longer up to the task and we need to overhaul it. And my hope is that when the dust settles, and I'm hoping the dust will settle probably on into 2023, uh, people will say, wait a minute. We need a modern 21st century civil service system that takes things like this into account and we'll finally see some reforms. Uh, we can talk a little bit about what those reforms may look like, but, uh, but, but again, my experience is it's going to take something external to drive the federal government into uh, taking some sort of tangible action. Well, regarding those reforms, you and I have talked about reforms a thousand times if we've done it once, Ron. Are there any pieces in place for those reforms today, or would that reform process require essentially starting from scratch? No, it wouldn't require starting from scratch, although we may say that because, you know, no, no a current administration likes to give credit to its predecessors. Uh, but I think at least some of the pieces are in place. 
Uh, I'll give you a, a very recent example, uh, and that's the Department of Homeland Security's Cyber Talent Management System. Don't get me started about that because it is uh, it, it was seven years in the making, and that's six years too long. And it was not, repeat, not because of the stated reasons that it takes that long to design a new system. It does not. It takes that long when you have to deal with political transitions and armies of lawyers trying to pick it apart. But again, don't get me started on that. But it's only intended to cover a couple of hundred people, things like that. Um, or the new IRS um, HR legislation, it's embedded in the infrastructure bill. We can talk about that as well. I've got some fingerprints on both. Uh, those are the kinds of things that uh, essentially break the mold of one size fits all. So the kind of civil service overall I'm talking about would look at things like the DHS and DOD Cybersecurity Authority, the IRS Authority and others and say, we need something that is more customized and tailored to individual agency missions. And Francis, you and I have been there. We've had this conversation time and time again, so long as those individual agency systems or subsystems conform to a broad set of uh, cross-government principles, I say, let them have at it. Because frankly, Francis, they're having at it anyway. They're all cutting their own deals, and I have to plead guilty to helping them. The uh, IRS one is a system that I don't think a lot of people have talked about. Angie Bailey was on the program within the last couple of weeks talking about the the cyber talent management system at DHS. And I've heard subsequent to that conversation, other chief human capital officers across the government saying, I wish I could get my hands on that, or I'm, I'm starting to work toward trying to get my hands on that. But they're looking at that seven-year number that you cited and saying, am I even going to be the chief human capital officer? of agency x yeah. by the time it becomes possible tell me what's in the irs system that is a benefit that's a potential jumping off point for civil service reform ron well it gives the irs almost almost unfettered authority to bring on new entry-level frontline staff uh thousands of them and it's going to take that unfettered authority to do that in time for it to make a difference now uh, Francis, again, quick footnote, IRS is going to have to drastically revise and reform its internal business processes to do this. This can't be the same uh, old IRS. Uh, there are new job descriptions, new jobs, new work, new missions, but it does have the legislative authority now to go off and do that uh, rapidly. And it also has the same authority at the senior level to bring in several hundred folks at much, much higher pay pay equivalent to the vice president. Uh, again, almost unfettered where before uh, that authority has been uh, fettered almost to the point of non-existence. So uh, those are examples now in IRS's case, the, the business case was made by uh, the, uh, again, calm reasoned heads in the Congress, as well as a whole bunch of former commissioners saying, if you wanna close the tax gap, if you wanna enforce the laws that are already on the books, you can't strangle the IRS in terms of technology and people. And so those authorities are the, are the result. But I'll give you another more, just as positive example, uh, and, and frankly, more positive in my view than CTMS. Uh, one year after DHS got its authority to create its own cybersecurity personnel system, DOD got similar authority. DOD implemented it in two years. 
DOD has already hired thousands and thousands of people under it. It's called the Cybersecurity Accepted Service. It's gone. It's it's um, been implemented pretty much under the radar screen, but its reforms are frankly even more far-reaching than CTMS. They were in, in implemented much, much, much more quickly, and we've already seen the effect with DoD, uh, its uh, Cyber Command, and uh, the military service. Uh, supporting units to Cyber Command, hiring thousands of people under that uh, system. Again, under the radar screen, those are the kinds of agency-specific and mission-specific systems that I think this overhaul will force. But right now, all of that is being uh, is happening piecemeal. And there needs, in my humble opinion, there needs to be a grand strategy that says, agencies, do your own thing, subject to these broad principles. We said this in the first NAPA report, it too, um, uh, I forget the exact title, but uh, no time to uh, waste or no time to wait or something like that. Uh, I was part of that panel and it's a couple of years, so I'll apologize for my mem uh, fading memory. But it basically said balance uh, broad principles with uh, agency and mission specific systems. So the mold is there, the pieces are there, we've done it before, let's just get on with it. But again, my view is it's going to take a black swan to force it. Uh, and Francis, my other black swan is similar. Uh, and this one is right out of uh, the president's daily brief. Uh, I think Russia is going to go into the Ukraine. And I think Russia is going to accompany it uh, with a, a massive cyber attack against the U.S. and its allies. In neither case will Russia's fingerprints be overt. They're going to use little green men for both. But the same deal, it's going to force a, re, uh, a rethinking of how we use civilian, in this case, federal government, civil servants in protecting ourselves against those kinds of attacks, whether it's Russia and the Ukraine uh, externally or a, quote, rigged election, quote, unquote, uh, internally. Uh, the system needs to be overhauled and it's going to take some sort of impetus like that to make it happen. All right, Ron, you said a couple of times earlier in the conversation, don't get me started, and I think it's too late. <laughs> I think you got yourself started. It's great to talk to you, my friend. Those are two really scary but important things to look forward to, to look out for in 2022. I'm grateful for your time, as always. And I hope they do not come true, Francis. Oh, you're not the only one, my friend. <laughs> Thanks, man. You can read more about Ron's top two for 22 in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Tomorrow's show includes the former eGov administrator at OMB, Mark Foreman, and some cyber lookaheads from former CIA officer Ron Marks. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until tomorrow, thanks very much for listening to the Daily Scoop podcast. Thank you.